Hello and welcome to this April 2012 edition of the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Elliot Perlman, who's a practising barrister, one of Australia's finest contemporary novelists, and the author most recently of The Street Sweeper. Writing of the book in The Guardian, Jay Perini said, Epic is a word that one must use carefully, but this is an epic in scope and moral seriousness. The story spans half a century with scenes in New York, Melbourne, Chicago, Warsaw and Auschwitz. It's mainly a book of memories, but as Perlman reminds us in the opening lines, memory is a willful dog. It won't be summoned or dismissed, but it cannot survive without you. It's a novel which takes in the events of the Holocaust and its aftermath in Europe, and the civil rights struggles in the United States. And it's a novel which reminds us that anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia and hatred have not yet been confined to the history books. They are with us still, and amnesia comes with a high price. After Elliot had read two extracts from the book, which you'll find on the product page for The Street Sweeper at faber.co.uk, I remarked that the professions of novelist, actor and barrister seem to me to have something in common. Absolutely, there are certain things that they have in common um, and certain things, for a start, being a barrister, you're, not, you're definitely involved in storytelling, but you're not permitted to make a single thing up. As an author, you're required to make it all up. Although I should say, all of the events that take place in the uh, middle of the 20th century are based on events that actually happened. They're, they're real historic events. But uh, I have fictionalised them to make connections between people. Um, but if in doubt, the reader should assume that these things happened. And by checking the, the back of the book, you can find which of them in particular did. Although there probably are some that um, I haven't even made clear were based on historical events that in fact also were based on historical events. The the other thing as far as acting, there's a certain performance element in being a barrister for sure and you have to tone it down a bit when you're before a judge as opposed to a jury. Juries will give you uh, a little more latitude. They like the performance. Judges can become a bit irritated by an overly theatrical um, appearance in court. But as a writer, you are, in a sense, inhabiting these other characters. And so with the only tools at your disposal as a writer, which which are words, you are acting. You're taking on the roles of different people and performing. Only when you give a reading do you get to use some other weapon, namely your voice. But uh, through language, you, you are, in a sense, taking on these other roles and, and performing a little like an actor. Several of the characters in this book, Elliot, feel very acutely their responsibility to the past. And I wondered what you felt as a novelist, as you've just said, you were using real experience, real historical events and characters. So what kind of responsibility did you feel towards those, those real people and events? I felt a tremendous responsibility to get it right for many reasons. The, the more obvious ones, I guess, are because of the enormity of the two uh, historical events that I deal with, um, I'm using event now in a, in a broad term to encompass a, a period of time. Uh, I'm talking about the civil rights movement in the US and also about the Holocaust. And I was so uh, determined to get them right that 
I approached them with the rigour of a historian, but uh, of course I'm not a historian. There wasn't anything in the novel that um, couldn't be found, at least in a footnote somewhere else, but I was trying to get the stories of these people to be better known. And uh, I have personal reasons for, for wanting to do this, particularly with the Holocaust. I don't have a personal connection to the civil rights movement, but my grandparents were Eastern European Jews, Polish and Russian, and they fled uh, anti-Semitism in the late 20s and came to Australia. And had they not, we wouldn't be able to talk now. And they lost pretty much everyone. And I felt, and, and it's a feeling that I have not just because of my uh, family connection or my ethnic connection to the Holocaust, but uh, if you know what really happened, if you have some view of it, you realise that this is in a sense the gold standard of human rights abuse and it, it staggers the imagination and a lot of people, including well-educated people and well-meaning well-educated people and even some well-meaning well-educated Jews think that they know what happened and this is because they are, in, in effect, saturated with the imagery. They see the black and white footage of um, emaciated people in uh, those uh, striped pyjama-looking uniforms, or they see corpses being bulldozed into pits. And there's such horrific imagery, and they've seen it enough times, and they hear the figure six million, and they think, that's the Holocaust. It was horrible, but I know about it. Now I'm going to uh, either move on to some other catastrophe or just move on to something more pleasant. But I've, quote unquote, done the Holocaust. And in fact, because they are so saturated with the imagery, they don't bother to really know what happened. And so they're paradoxically starved of real information as to what actually happened. And so I wanted to through the agency of a novel, and, and I should stress that the, um, the storytelling aspect for me always comes first before any history or social message or anything because that's essentially what I am as a storyteller. And if I can't get you to turn the page, then it doesn't matter how beautiful my motives or my ethical system, it's, it's wasted. So the storytelling comes first, but if I was going to tell a story that dealt with this kind of history, the Holocaust and also the civil rights movement, I really wanted to get it right so that those readers who have perhaps forgotten what they once knew about it will be reminded, and those readers who didn't know very much or even anything about it will learn what the hell these monumental uh, events in the 20th century were. And um, I don't shirk from that. Whether I've been overly didactic, uh, some people will say I have been. Uh, I try not to be, but I, I don't mind if the reader comes away with a much better knowledge of, of the civil rights movement and also of the Holocaust, even though that's not my primary objective. Uh, I think it's no bad thing if, if fiction can do that sort of thing. You mentioned your own personal family history as having, in a sense, sort of fueled your desire to write about this. Tell me how the civil rights aspect of the book, which is also very strong and very important, how did, how did that 
then become part of your overall plan? Because I suppose you could have already um, written a very ambitious book about the Holocaust. And there's already a lot of meat there to, to get your teeth into as a novelist. So what was it that made you think that the civil rights could then become part of the, the, the whole canvas that you were painting? Because of my upbringing, the way I was brought up, which is, uh, I, it was a very culturally priv- privileged background. You know, my grandparents made the, the huge transition from Europe to Australia, but by the next generation, my mother became an English teacher and my father was a, an academic physicist. And I grew up in a house lined with books, many of them Faber books. And so I was... Um, surrounded by culture and it was also a a kind of political culture it was left-leaning liberal a certain strand of Jewish tradition that leans in that direction and I suppose I was taught that you know and and it might stem from the religion but uh, ours was not at all a religious household but that we have a we we ought to try to live our lives not merely not hurting other people but to try to make the world a better place and in this environment I was taught about the civil rights movement in the United States as a kind of a modern or contemporary chapter in the history of the Enlightenment you know if you think of the Enlightenment as being our species attempt to take the one step forward despite the two steps back that we always take, to rid ourselves of irrational prejudices and superstitions, then the civil rights movement is a magnificent contemporary, or nearly contemporary, example of this. And it's a rare, unambiguous success story in that um, there's no question that through the bravery and the tenacity and the ingenuity of the people involved, they unquestionably made things better for themselves. And I I should say, I stress for themselves because while the book does deal with black Jewish relations and Jewish involvement in the civil rights struggle, there's no suggestion by me that the civil rights movement was anything other than a black movement for black people and an incredibly successful one because the the uh, the situation for African Americans, while still sadly worse statistically than the situation for uh, white Americans, is remarkably improved over the last sort of fifty to sixty years. But the book does deal with uh, Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement because it was an interesting fact that I learned that while the vast majority the bulk of the people, the participants in the civil rights struggle were black. It was only the minority of people that were part of the movement that were white. But the vast majority of those whites happened to be Jewish. And I guess that's of interest to me because of the that part of Jewish culture that I come from. And uh, the, the civil rights struggle is intrinsically interesting because of its um, its heroic nature and its success. The fact that these people who had been oppressed, so um, systematically oppressed for so long, managed to get themselves out of this situation. And and, and this part's not all that well known or, or frequently commented on. They got the law changed. 
and uh, as a lawyer that's of particular interest to me. Some people know about people like Rosa Parks and the uh, the bus boycotts and, and that sort of thing. But in order for that to be legal, the laws had to be changed. And it was a group of lawyers, uh, uh, starting with uh, Charles Hamilton Houston and then his, his student, Thurgood Marshall, who became the first African-American uh, US Supreme Court judge. These people led to the laws being changed. And uh, I, I felt that's a story that's definitely worth telling. So I, I wanted to include that. And, and because I found myself living in New York, I had access to that world in a way that um, I didn't have when I was still living in Australia. And, and the combination of all of that seemed um, irresistible. And you're clearly sensitive. I know this from a, an afterword at the end of the book. You're sensitive to the possible charge that you are appropriating, as it were, someone else's culture, as well as Jewish culture. You're also using black culture, but you don't say cultural practices, which are not your own, to novelistic ends. But you, you've kind of thought your way through that. And so how do you respond to that? I'm hopeful that, uh, that it's not possible to read the book and, and think I'm anything but an opponent of racism. But because I do invoke African-American working class characters speaking to each other, I'm using dialogue in, in those instances that is not straight English. And that has been done in the past in an offensive way. And I wanted to make it clear that that was um, unequivocally not my intention. The extent to which I've managed to succeed in, in rendering those characters is probably for other people to judge. But I mean, I, I do, and I've said this in the afterward too, that um, I come to the conclusion that you really can only write about yourself if you don't want to run the risk of offending some group. I've written female characters before, and you know, it's it's uh, it's logically possible that a woman could be offended that I'm attempting to get inside her head and, and tell her story. I don't think that a novelist should be bound by those sorts of sensibilities. If anyone wanted to try and write about an Australian who wasn't an Australian, it wouldn't bother me. Equally, if they wanted to write about a Jew and they're not Jewish, it wouldn't bother me. The question is, have they been able to do it successfully? And if you do it with, um, with the best of intentions, if there's no malice there, then uh, I think you particularly ought to be licensed to do that. Otherwise, we would essentially be writing only autobiography. And in my case, that would be dreadfully boring. <laughs> We've talked earlier about some of the, the broader themes of the book, but as you say, you're interested in storytelling, and that requires characters in a particular predicament. And I wondered if you could just sketch out the situations for your two principal characters, Lamont and Adam, in this book. Okay, well, Lamont Williams is uh, a man in his late 30s who has served six years in uh, a couple of New York prisons for a crime he didn't commit. And he, um, Lamont, has been forced to live in the apartment that he grew up in with his grandmother while he tries to find his daughter, whom he hasn't seen since he went inside, because the mother of the daughter doesn't want him to have anything to do with her. And he manages, 
with, with great good fortune to be chosen as the first in a pilot program to see if ex-cons can be reintegrated into society by working at a hospital. It's a cancer hospital in Manhattan called Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And he discovers a patient, this elderly man, a Jewish man, a Holocaust survivor, and they end up swapping stories. And the, the gift of story, one to the other, and particularly uh, the, the Holocaust survivor story to Lamont, is incredibly enriching to Lamont in a number of ways that, that I, I won't elaborate on here, except to say that because the story is so remarkable to Lamont, despite the fact that he himself has been imprisoned, he takes a certain comfort from the fact that this man, this elderly man who has cancer, seems no longer afraid of anything, whereas Lamont is afraid of nearly everything because his life has taught him to be. He gets almost intoxicated by the old man's story and apparent absence of fear. So that's one of our two central protagonists. The other narrative arc, if you like, also is set in um, early 21st century New York. The character is a historian named Adam Zignelik. He is an untenured historian at Columbia University and he hasn't written anything new for five years. And he's so certain that this um, lack of productivity is going to lead him to uh, lose his job that he unilaterally ends a romantic relationship with a woman that he still loves, who still loves him deeply, who wants to marry him and have a child with him. But because of his own um, insecurities as, a, as an academic and his certainty that he's about to lose his job and his past with his parents who uh, split up when he was very young and his father's apparent lack of interest in being a father, all of this leads Adam to decide, I shouldn't be a parent, but I need to give her, his, his partner Diana, time to meet someone else and have a child before it's too late. So he unilaterally, prematurely ends this relationship and they both suffer for it. And he is going to get a tip, a research tip, that has the possibility of saving his career or rejuvenating his career and possibly even redeeming him personally. Both Adam and Lamont are repositories of memories in different ways. But I suppose that the sort of the, the sort of central person who who almost comes to embody memories of the Holocaust is a mid-20th century psychologist called Henry Border, whom you based on a, a real character. And it's a fantastic story, isn't it? What did you as a novelist, when you, I mean, were you aware of this man for a long time? What did you think when you came across? Surely you must, your, your novelist's antennae must have begin, begun twitching. I was in New York. I was living in New York, and I, uh, I wasn't even finished entirely Seven Types of Ambiguity, my previous novel. And I heard a snippet of a radio documentary 
And it was about a mid 20th century psychologist who had come up with a hypothesis that he called the adjective verb quotient. This was a theory that he posited that people use adjectives and verbs in, 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 different, in a different ratio to each other when they are in a situation of distress to times when they are not distressed. And what he was really positing, I guess, and it'll sound quite simple now, is that the more distressed you are, the fewer adjectives there will be in your, in your conversation, in your language. And I guess what he was hoping to do was to try to establish some kind of uh, measure so that you could tell from someone's language the extent of their distress. Well, in order to, to measure this, in order to get raw data, rather than look around the United States where there were plenty of people in distress, firstly there were returned veterans, uh, you know, soldiers coming home from the war who, who would have suffered what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Then there were victims of natural disasters that are always occurring in the US and there were floods I think in Kansas not, not far from the time that he was doing his research. And then, of course, there were African-Americans who lived in all sorts of states of distress, including the very area where he worked. He worked on the south side of Chicago uh, at a place called the Illinois Institute of Technology, which has since become a university. And on the south side of Chicago, where the campus is based, you would have probably, certainly at that time, the most urbanized, depressed ghetto for African-Americans that existed anywhere in the US, at least in the middle of the century. And yet he chose not to interview any of these people or anyone from any category in the United States that I've just mentioned. Rather, he made it his mission to get himself on his own funds, because he failed to get any backing, any financial backing, to get himself into allied occupied Europe in uh, the summer of 1946. So we're talking approximately 14 months after the end of hostilities. And he got himself there lugging a um, 60 pound wire, digital wire recorder. And it was just by chance that he even knew about this device because in the building next to where he worked, there was the engineering department of the Illinois Institute of Technology and one of the engineers was tinkering with a magnetic headed wire recording device that would record sound onto carbon strands of carbon steel wire without touching anything. This is the first time recordings had been made this way and the, the psychologist learned about this and he got permission from the engineer not only to be taught how to use it, but to, to borrow one and to take it all the way to Europe. And he got himself into DP camps with this wire recording device. And he would, without any institutional backing, he wasn't representing any government, any charity, any uh, university, just on his own, he would go into the mess room, the mess hall, the mess tent where the displaced persons were being fed. And he would get their attention by asking them if anyone would care to sing a lullaby or a nursery rhyme from their childhood. Now you'd have to 
remember that any recollection of these people's childhoods would be even more than usually emotionally um, affecting because their whole world had been destroyed. And he got them to, to various members of, of the displaced persons community within the camp would sing a lullaby or a nursery rhyme and he would record it and then play it back to them. And this stopped everyone in their tracks because they'd never seen a device that could record anything because very few people on earth had. It had only just been invented. This was the equipment that was going to be the prototype for cassettes and all sorts of magnetic uh, recording. And once he had their attention, he said to them, I would like to interview you about your experiences in Nazi concentration camps. And when people agreed, he would take them to the most quiet corner of the camp that he could find, which was never all that quiet because the camps were chaotic. And then he would try to interview them in a scientifically detached manner. He would have them face away from him so that they wouldn't be affected by any facial expressions that they elicited through their stories. And he would run through all this and he recorded them. He recorded, it ended up being over a hundred of these in different DP camps around Europe. And I heard in this radio documentary, the very last one, the end of the last one. And he's interviewed a woman about giving up, smuggling her baby daughter out of a ghetto and surrendering this baby to a Polish non-Jewish woman that the mother of the daughter had met only once. She tells this story on the wire recording and she gets to the end of the story where she's explaining that she learned that the baby grew up with this childless Polish woman and she grew up just old enough to resemble her father. And in the town, people knew who the father was and they knew that he was a Jew. And so the little girl was denounced. And the mother is telling this Midwestern psychologist that the little girl was denounced and murdered. And at that point, she breaks off into to paroxysms of tears. She can't speak anymore. She's engulfed by the agony of her own grief. And at this point, the Midwestern psychologist starts speaking in English. For the first time, he's lost his detachment. And he says, while she is crying, he says to the wire recorder, because there's no one around that can understand English, he says, who is going to stand in judgment over all of this? And this was something I heard on the radio that was moving, but it didn't shock me because obviously what this man was doing was collecting in a, in a random way the first narrative of what we would now call the Holocaust before it had the name Holocaust. But then he said one other thing that completely stunned me. He said, after a, a gap where you hear nothing but the crackle and hum and hiss of the wire recording itself, he says, who is going to stand in judgment over my work? 
And that voice that asked that question is so coated in guilt, absolutely uh, dripping with self-recrimination and guilt, that it stunned me because I thought I was listening to a radio documentary about the father of oral history, the first person to record probably anyone's oral history, but particularly Holocaust survivors' oral history. And I was, but then it, it took a turn. This man had something that made him feel guilty. And I knew at that time the answer to the question, what the hell is he guilty about? The answer to that question would be found in my next book. And that's why I decided to write about him. I was talking to Elliot Perlman about The Street Sweeper. It's available now in paperback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the regular Faber podcasts by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.